art enthusiasts, it's Mike Henley. Welcome back to Drawing Inspiration. Each episode explores the artist's journey through interviews and personal insights. So come on in, get comfortable, and let's get inspired together. Episode 105, Capturing Light and Life, the Watercolor World of Shelley Pryor. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. So I just wanted to start by thanking all my supporters on Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee. I've had some fantastic people in supporting me from the beginning and recent supporters like Vero and Brooke who've uh, assisted in kind of supporting me on my artist journey. There are changes coming. So I am going to be going ahead with Substack as a way to deliver both my newsletter and my uh, kind of limited access content or paid for content as you would consider with Patreon. And so I've been thinking about this for a while, about how do I uh, get the content out to you and how do I do so in a way that uh, where I can spend a bit more time on some more critical pieces like doing a complete hour and a half drawing and painting and talking through the whole process. How do I deliver that in the best way? I think Substack's going to be the route to go. And Substack is a platform that many creatives use. I am using ConvertKit right now for my newsletter And I also have a Patreon account. And so my thinking is that I can roll both ConvertKit and Patreon into Substack. And if you are subscribed to my newsletter, I will just port you over, just move you over to Substack. There's nothing you have to do on your end. And you will enter in as a free subscriber. And then if you choose to get access to the paid content, uh, then you can do so. You can just remain free for the longest time if you choose to. And I'm going to try and send out more frequent, smaller updates uh, to those both free and paid subscribers on Substack. So I'm going to be doing this over the next few weeks. If you haven't subscribed to my newsletter, you can, and you'll be part of that. I've turned off billing for Patreon, and so I've kind of put that in a holding pattern. And so those that are Patreon supporters, that will be ending. And so it will be up to you to decide what to do at that point. But as long as you're subscribed to the newsletter, you'll be getting that for free, and then you can uh, take a look at what I'm offering as a matter of the paid a version of Substack and see if that's worthy of um, of sending a few dollars my way. So keep an eye on this. I'll send out a, a newsletter message just outlining this as a matter of when I'm going to kind of flip the switch. And I'll do the same with the Patreon supporters as well. So I'm just trying to consolidate things and provide an opportunity for a better narrative and conversation with you. And I think Substack will help to, to get me where I need to be. And I want to be able to do these kind of longer, slightly longer videos. I talked about it before where it'll be an hour and a half, an hour, an hour and a half, and then put up a 10 minute version on YouTube. And I think that uh, this may be the better route to go. So I think I'm pretty confident this will be a good path forward. And uh, as I say, I want to get more stuff out to you that may trigger your creativity, that may take you or, or on a path that you didn't expect or help to enforce a path you're already on. So I'm excited about what comes next and we'll see, we'll see what we can explore together. So I did speak at uh, the Wild Wonder Conference and that was a fantastic experience. (laughs) I did a little class on graphite. It was an hour and 25 minutes, I think. And the conference was so well organized. Hats off to everyone. I don't want to mention names because there's so many people that were part of this in the organization as well as the actual Zoom kind of uh, class that I was doing. And it's just a well-oiled machine. Everything was on time. The uh, pencil mile sessions that were hosted by Avea were fantastic. It was an opportunity to connect directly with other creators. 
and other people interested in nature journaling. And so I was at each one of those. And then on the Sunday, there was one just around my class. I was able to connect more with some of you that were there. And I really, really enjoyed that experience. It was wonderful. I learned so much from all the other instructors. There was 30 plus teachers. I think you can still get tickets if you want to watch the replays. I think that's still available. And I think the the videos are going to be up until April or something like that. Crazy. So uh, I did learn so much from all the other creatives talking about not only rendering various elements, whether it's uh, working on chickens or understanding what you can do as a matter of stewardship or learning about a new book that's coming out. But it was just, it was so, like, everybody's enthusiastic and so just connected with what they're doing. It was, uh, I, I really hope they continue doing this. And I really hope to um, to be part of it again next year. At, if at the very least as an attendee, I'm for sure going to be going back next year and, and being part of this as a consuming all this wonderful content. And so when I did my talk, I uh, kind of covered my journey. I shared some thoughts about what I think I've learned along the way, along with my portfolio at the same time to try to make it more fun. And then we got into the graphite. It was so hard to talk about graphite in such a short period of time. But I think I, I did enough to get people kind of excited about exploring different things. And I think it leads into my next point, which is my fall etcher course. It is, uh, I've nearly done my videos. It's been a real challenge for me to find the time to do all of this. So it's on me that's actually delayed. <laughs> and I'm not going to say it's delayed. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's moved a little bit. So the free demo will be October 29th at this point in time. And that's where uh, you can just join it for free. And I'll talk for, I think, an hour, an hour and a half. And we'll do a piece together. And the course will begin a week later and run for six weeks. And so we're into November, into middle of December, and the seventh week is a critique. And so that will be uh, an opportunity for you to work on something and then come back and we can have a critique about some of those pieces. So you can register for that now. There is a link in the show notes for that. So this is a really in-depth course. I've tried to approach it from a perspective of this is how I do things and it is not the best way in the world to do pencil or graphite, but this is how I think, this is how I observe, this is how I render, and I'm hopeful that you'll find at least one thing from each of the six classes that you can use against your art. And once again, I'm trying to think about this not just for pencil artists, but anyone who creates art, whether it's uh, watercolor or acrylic or oil, just being able to understand observation and maybe embrace a bit of a drawing mind uh, may lead you to a path that you didn't expect and may lead to something incredible. So um, that's my hope with this course, and we'll see where it takes us. So I just wanted to be real quick with the updates. So that's it for this week. Now let's head into the interview. Today we have a very special guest who's been breathing life into watercolor art for over three decades. Joining us all the way from Burlington, Ontario, we have Shelley Pryor, a full-time artist, art instructor, and an expert in watercolor painting. For those of you who aren't familiar with Shelley's work, let me give you a quick overview. Shelley's love affair with watercolor has led her to develop a highly realistic style, capturing everything from birds and wildlife to portraits, still life, and breathtaking landscapes. But that's not all. She's also an active instructor who's been imparting her knowledge in workshops not only in Canada, but occasionally in the U.S. as well. What really stands out when you look at Shelley's work is the play of light. She believes that light is the life of the painting a philosophy that shines through every piece she creates. Shelley's work is a perfect example of how meticulous planning, quality materials, and an endless love for experimentation can lead to stunning artistry. 
Today we'll delve into Shelley's artistic journey, her relationship with various mediums, including acrylic and oil, and most importantly, her mastery in capturing light and creating luminosity through watercolors. To talk about her creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, Shelley Pryor. Hi, Shelley. How are you? Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm so happy. I, I found you through a, uh, I guess, a little bit of a talk I did for a watercolor society up here in Canada, and you reached out and, and commented about the little presentation I had made, and then I took a look through your page, and I was thinking, I need to have Shelley on the podcast. <laughs> like it's, I was just blown away by your work and all the art instruction that you're doing and all the outreach you do through YouTube and others. I, I figured you have to come on on We Can Talk. And uh, so I'm so glad you said yes to the invitation. Well, thank you. So glad to be here. I always like to kind of start with understanding where people come from and uh, because I think there's an opportunity for us to connect with artists that way. So I'm wondering for you, was because creativity seems to be such a huge part of your life now, was it a huge part of your life when you were a child? Were you a creative child? Yes. Actually, I have a, a large family, or I have seven brothers and sisters. So I spent a lot of time kind of hiding out in my room with my coloring books, I guess. <laughs> Were you the uh, in the middle, or were you youngest or oldest? Or I'm in the middle. Okay, nice. Yeah. So caught in between, and uh, a chance for you to kind of keep yourself entertained. Were you inspired at that age by a certain kind of genre or uh, type of art or type of uh, entertainment at that point? I think I would was always kind of striving to be more realistic. Uh, you know, every, as as a kid, I guess you typically do that. You try to paint something that, so that people know it's a dog and not a cow. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know? So. So you weren't into uh, Disney or comics or things like that necessarily. Oh, I think yeah, absolutely. As as a matter of fact, I ended up going into animation for for college. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so we'll get there. <laughs> You're a creative type. When when you were going in through high school, did that stick with you? Were you doing, were you painting, were you drawing, or were you into other things at that point? Oh, I, very much so. I, I was always choosing as many art electives as I was allowed to. <laughs> if I could have taken more, I probably would have. And of course, I think I was greatly inspired by uh, Robert Bateman, who was a teacher at my school. Oh, wow. So, but unfortunately, at the time that I was going there, he was a geography teacher, not an art teacher. <laughs> but but it was it was inspiring to watch his um, career take off. Wow, I didn't realize you had that Bateman connection. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. You're going in through high school, enjoying the creativity and the electives. What did you what What led you to college next? You said you animation came into it. Was there, when you ended high school and moved into college, was there something about that that you told you you had to go into kind of creation uh, versus accounting or medicine or something else? Did you feel compelled to go into that? or? Well, since I kind of doodled in all my math books, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you flip the pages and there's little doodles of some guy diving off of a diving board or something like that. So my math books didn't have a lot of math in them. They um, they had a lot of doodles, though. And I guess just because I loved my art classes so much, and I had such a really good supportive art teacher, when it was time to look for a career beyond high school and going into college and everything, 
art just seemed to be a natural um, place for me to head. And luckily, I had a family that was very supportive of that. Yeah, that's important. I mean, we talk about networks through our life, right, as to the influences and the people that kind of guide us a little bit or bounce us back into the lane we should be in. But it's good that it's good that you had a family that supported you in that way, right? Yes, they never said, well, are you? Well, actually, let me back up. They actually did say you should have a backup career. So (laughs) my my backup career, believe it or not, was business typing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so useful nowadays. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, it is, uh, uh, luck has shined on me, and it, it has worked out. That's awesome. So when you were choosing, uh, you said animation, did you, did you think about creative directions as a matter of you know, illustration or animation, obviously, or other directions? Did, did you lean one way or the other? Did you play around a little bit? Or how did that go for you? I actually didn't finish the animation course because um, originally, when I started taking it, there was talk of Disney coming to Toronto. And, and I was excited about this this uh, potential here. And I thought I was hoping, you know, I could sort of see my future as, as an animator for Disney at in Toronto and, and all of that. But then, then they came out, they pulled out of Toronto. And they, the job opportunities within Canada were very slim. So it was looking more and more like if I wanted a career path in animation that I would have to move to the US, which I didn't want to do. And I was also really tired of drawing Goofy. So I was realizing pretty quickly that the animation drawing was really, really repetitious. (laughs) Because I took, of course, the classical animation. Now it's all digital. But I also felt that it was kind of not as creative as I really wanted to be. So from there, I went on on to Dundas Valley School of Art. and, And I've taken probably a hundred or more different workshops from other well-known artists. That's amazing. And it's it's interesting you mentioned, uh, we, we didn't say this at the beginning, that you're based around in and around Toronto. Yes. That uh, it, it has become a huge hub for, you know, Netflix and and uh, you know Star Trek uh, Discovery and 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 a lot of that stuff is all shot in Toronto, uh, so it's amazing that it's become a hub now for a lot of that stuff. Yes, it has. You know, at, at, for a while it kind of it was there was promise, and then it was kind of like nope, nope, it's not going to happen. And now it's really come back, and we're kind of like the Hollywood North. Yes, so. exactly. You decided to leave animation and go into into a different school and pursue something different. What was it that really drew your attention? Uh, because when you talk about art and art school, you know, a lot of art schools, they focus on just a, a plethora of things, right? So you, you you get to play with watercolor and oil and acrylic and pottery and, and um, uh, it, you know, woodwork and everything. So what was, what were you looking for? And what did you find in that school? Well, I think what I was really looking for was um, exposure to more different ways of uh, expressing myself in art. So I did take the oils and the acrylics and the watercolors. And actually, I was terrible at watercolor. <laughs> I was terrible. <laughs> That's interesting, because we're going to get really deep into watercolor a bit later. <laughs> and I've said this before, it, it took me f- six attempts, I think, to finally wrap my mind around watercolor. Acrylic was, you know, I haven't spent a whole lot of time on acrylic. And behind me is the only piece I've done so far in acrylic. And 
but watercolor was so hard. So it's it's it, it's interesting that you you started with that frustration and now you're yeah. I I like a challenge. It's, it's kind of kind of a well, if it's hard to do, then that's what I've got to do. Kind of mentality. I've just got to conquer it because I'm competitive enough, I guess, <laughs> that I just have to do it. Did you find uh, like so? Were you playing in oil and acrylics at the time? And eventually moved into watercolor, or was it at that point where you decided, "Yes, this is hard. I want to do it." I was doing a lot of uh, graphite. I was doing a lot of drawing, as well as acrylic, and and oil, um, and very little watercolor, to be honest, <laughs> because it's hard. <laughs> it's very hard. And so you you're going through this school, and did you finish that program then? I did at Dundas. I did. Okay. So what did you end up doing after that? Did you move into some kind of... Well, like probably many uh, aspiring artists, uh, I found the most art-related job, full-time job that I could find. And so I was working for a printing company, and uh, I was working in the graphic department, which which meant sitting at a drafting table and, and actually gluing on stuff onto ads, and not a lot of real creativity, but... Yeah, you could say it was a, a loose connection to what you were doing, yeah. but yeah, were you still kind of painting and and doing stuff in the evenings? Was that still occupying your mind, or was it? Yeah, as as much as I could, uh, I was still drawing a lot. I, I was still doing a lot of that on my own, not really pursuing it in a way of um, selling or anything like that. I knew that I still had to to learn a lot. So. Did you stay there, not there necessarily, but were you in that industry for a period of time? And then what was the next kind of change for you? Um, I was there for a few years. And then I went on to uh, become a product designer for a framing company. And because again, that is art related, right? <laughs> right. So <laughs> so I went into this um, this other full-time job at... Uh, at this frame company, and again, it, it was it was good steady income, which you wouldn't otherwise have as a, as a young artist. You'd still have bills to pay and everything else, uh, but it it wasn't the most creative. Uh, again, it wasn't uh, it wasn't really what I was envisioned myself doing when I was taking art in school. And once again, you were still doing the painting and the drawing and the things in your spare time. Yeah, a lot of probably commissions and things like I would I would happily take a commission. I think a lot of uh, new artists will do that. They'll take commissions in order to pay bills. And, uh, you know, but that's kind of where I was. Trying to make ends meet in that. Yeah. And uh, so what happened after that? You work at the framing company for a period of time. And then what was the next step for you? Well, I got married and uh, started a family. So for several years, when when I was home raising my children, there wasn't a lot of art going on, other than, you know, playing with the kids and giving them some watercolors to play with too, you know, that sort of thing. But uh, I think they always saw me drawing and painting (laughs) as they were growing up. Yeah, it wasn't until they got older that I was able to carve out a little bit more time for my own interest. It is hard, uh, having been through it with two daughters as well. It's hard to balance that uh, working with your partner. And if you've got that opportunity to have one that's available. <laughs> and I say that because I, I don't want to assume anything, but it's it's a challenge having to entertain and to keep um, to keep the kids on track and fed and all that kind of stuff with our youngest or our oldest 
um, I was the stay-at-home dad. So I was entertainment, I was the food source, and making the meals and the breakfast and, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? And I, I, I can't think of a more rewarding job, but it was also exhausting. <laughs> like it was... Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> you, you lose a bit of yourself um, in all of that, and it's, it's hard. It is hard. For sure. Yeah, I can appreciate what that must be like and uh, trying to fit in art in that. And that's how I stumbled upon it was drawing with my daughter. And so it's nice that you were able to at least foster a little bit of that. You know, I've, I've had, uh, I had an oil painter from uh, BC on and um, Sarah McKendry and she, she was uh, also has right now the same struggles, right? Yes. But her, her children are a little bit older but when you're working with oils then there's more concerns with fumes and paints that don't dry quickly and yes she's she's an inspiration she i i also follow her and uh yeah she's she's got to be busy <laughs> juggling everything <laughs> yes. she's got in her life yeah. yeah exactly so it's uh it's good that you were able to find that space and at least foster it and 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 keep kind of giving it a little bit of attention through that and so as your as your children are getting older, did that help clarify for you what you should be doing? Did that help guide you into what your next phase would be? Well, I, I think, you know, I've always been sort of in line with what I wanted to do. I don't think I ever steered off of that um, too far anyway. Yes, they, they were very interested in art themselves. And I've actually done an art show with my daughter. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So they're they're grown now, of course, but uh, yeah, but yeah, one has really uh, they both have a completely different style than I do, completely different. But of course, they have to be different, right? And, yes, absolutely. And uh, it's, it's like their their mission in life is to be become uh, unique and independent. So they have to be different. Yeah, it, we did a show together, and uh, it was uh, it was very nice. I've done a few together with them. That's fantastic. And so what was the next, like, at what point did you start transitioning to doing more of it? Like, at what age did they get to where you felt, I've got, like, was it when they got to full-time school? Was it when they got later into high school? At what point did you kind of get that momentum going? Again? Probably high school. I, I, when they got into high school, I think I I started to, you know, they become more independent that, you know, you don't have to drive them to soccer practices and uh, skating lessons or swimming lessons and things like that. So once you get kind of past that stage where you're, you're not really driving them to all their events, yeah, then I had a little bit more focus on what I was doing. And uh, I was working, I was working part time as a framer, at that time and uh you know and that helped to just sort of supplement my habit <laughs> right <laughs> and so when you started devoting more time to this as they were in high school was it watercolor or was it uh like acrylics and oils what were you kind of focusing on when you had a bit more time well it's it's interesting that you should bring that up because we did i mean of course with with children, you're using watercolor because it's non-toxic and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, as for myself, I still sucked at watercolor. I was really not good at it. But I just got my my determination on one day. I just, I don't know, it was like a, a switch flipped. And I thought, I love how watercolor looks. And despite how miserably I failed in college, I am going to figure this out. 
because I just want to. <laughs> I like the how it looks and I'm going to figure it out no matter what. So I just, I knuckled down. I joined groups, other groups that were doing watercolor. I joined uh, art guilds, like, it, you know, we have a, a, an art gallery here and I joined the group there. I I went to the library. I took out as many books and magazines and, and tapes as I could on... Uh, on doing watercolor and and I studied a lot harder and just sort of really focused on that one subject which you know you don't do like you like you were mentioning earlier in in college you tend to sort of get a little uh, sort of the buckshot approach where you're just kind of getting a little bit of everything oil and acrylic and pottery and stone carving and whatever the case may be so you don't really get to dive deep into it and that's I just got determined and dove deep. Do you remember the first piece where you felt like, this is clicking for me? Do you, do you remember that piece where you thought, I think I got this sorted out a little bit? Um, well, yeah, I think so. I, I think I can, there's probably been a few, but there's one in particular that I still own. And I think that was kind of like that moment that's like, I love how this turned out. It turned out so good. And I was so excited. And and so I kept that piece. I thought that that's going to be my piece that I'm going to keep. And uh, I, I can sell all the ones after this, but this one I'm going to keep. And, and I still have it. Can I ask what the subject is for that? It's a swan. Oh. Yeah, it's it's a, a full sheet watercolor. And, uh, and, and part of it probably is the emotional connection because I live in an area, I, I live right near the lake, and... Uh, when you go down to the lake, it's a little bit of a bird sanctuary. So there's literally hundreds of swans. Oh, wow. And one morning I went down there very early. And the sun, the sun was kind of just coming up. So it was this nice warm light and it was shining on this swan that was sleeping on the, on the beach. And so I just, I walked up and I got my camera, I had my camera right close and it wouldn't open its eye. So I made a noise for it to open its eye and it just looked, gave me a look and then it just closed its eye and went back to sleep. But I got the picture and it was one of those, as soon as I took the photo, I knew I was going to paint it kind of things. And I guess I always remember the moment when when I look at that painting. That's awesome. You know, I've been to Toronto so many times and haven't sp- like I'm gonna have to maybe offline find out where this is because I'm I'm once I get to Toronto I feel like I'm in a big city because it's a big city uh, and the only time I see the water is if I fly in with Porter or something onto the island <laughs> uh, so I've never really beyond hitting kind of the ROM uh, the Royal Ontario Museum and uh, the, the Ripley's Aquarium and things like that I haven't really spent a whole lot of time in Toronto beyond business meetings downtown so I'm gonna have to find out where this is because I love discovering these areas in other cities where you can have this opportunity to connect with nature that may look and feel different, even though you're just a few hours from me. Yeah, well, I'm actually a little bit west of Toronto. So I'm not in Toronto. I'm, I'm closer to Hamilton. Okay. But, uh, but it's... I'll, I'm going to be down there at some point, I think. Okay. There's a, there's a few stops I have to make and a few people I have to see. And uh, so I'm going to, I'll touch base with you because that's, uh, I, I need to I have this road trip angst I haven't done many lately, so I want to get out that way and a few other directions from here as well. So uh, sure, you know, I'd love to go to to Peely Point Peely mm-hmm. because that's um, 
that's a pretty special place when it comes to things yeah. like monarch butterflies. Yes. You got to go during the uh, migration. Yes. Yes. So that's maybe not this year, but next year, because we raise monarchs. And so there's a real, we've been doing it for years, probably a decade, uh, if not longer. And so it'd be a real special thing to to get down to Point Pelee, uh, which is, which is, for those of you who don't know, it's, it's, I think the most Southern point in Canada, Correct. it's at the same kind of latitude as Northern California, I think like it's, it's much deeper than people think, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's an amazing place. Beautiful park. I've never been, I'm saying that because I've just read and been wanting to go, but anyways, let's get back to <laughs> <laughs> your inspiration with, with nature is... Is that something you you did and still do in the sense of going out and, and capturing these images yourself and and being inspired by what you see? Yes, and yes and no. I actually mostly work from the photo references that I take. Most things in nature are fleeting, you know, birds in particular just yes. don't hang around or you just sketch them. So, um, so I usually will take my reference pictures in person, but then I'll come back to my studio to paint them. And I think part of my my inspiration again goes back to uh, Robert Bateman. You know, he he loved uh, birds and nature, and I think he really gave an awareness to uh, our surroundings. And he being a big birder himself, so he was on the podcast. I'll link to it in the show notes, and uh, and I'll this I'll just take this opportunity to remind people that I do really good show notes. So everything that we talk about here will be in the show notes, so be assured that you can uh, follow some of the links at some of the places we talked about, including my interview with Bateman, uh, Point Peely, and all the other stuff that we're going to cover as well. But um, yeah, he was he's a huge inspiration in all the work he's done with, with nature. And you're right, it is hard. You know, a lot of people say you should, you know, do still lifes and that, but it's hard to do a still life when the life ain't still. <laughs> so <laughs> Exactly. It is a, a great opportunity to um, to work from your own references, especially if you have that connection, right? Where you you tell that story of the swan, and that's the story that plays in your head every time you probably see that image. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's really special about our artwork is if somebody's interested in buying what we've painted, that you have that opportunity to share that story, and that becomes part of the composition, that becomes part of the piece, right? When it's hanging in their house, absolutely, they can tell that story. Yes, yeah. definitely. Like I see a lot of your pieces. Uh, you know, you've got focus on like there's a, I see a wagon wheel in the background, and it's it's on your Instagram feed as well, which I, I just the blues that you've done on that in the hub and um, being able to incorporate the shadow is just incredible. And so it's what is it about the stuff out there that attracts you? What is it that you think, oh, that would be an interesting piece? Well, I think that uh, almost everything that I'm attracted to painting and everything that I try to incorporate into my painting is includes uh, if expressive lighting of some kind. And so if it's brilliant light, then I, I love how, you know, if it's later in the day that you've got these really warm highlights and then you've got these really cool shadows. And and I try to incorporate some kind of uh, expressive lighting, you know, whether it's a sort of directional light or or midday light, you know, where things are like really, really bright or and uh, the highlights are maybe cool and the shadows are warm in those cases. But uh, yeah, it's usually the light that grabs me. Yeah, and you've done so many pieces with glass, right? Yes. In, in painting glass. Like, I, I admire that so much because when, I, when I've been playing with glass a little bit and trying to either paint it or draw it, it it's like a it's like a portal to a different dimension when you start trying to paint or capture or draw 
those folds of light and material and you know the reflection and the reflectivity and and the way the light bends like i i'm just uh, i'll include links to a few of these pieces that you've done but they it's just amazing that you're able to render this in watercolor thank you i think i I've got a little magpie in me because I just, I'm always attracted to, to glass and silver and all those shiny things. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's amazing. And you still have, you know, you, you've done some landscapes and uh, flowers and, uh, you know, the hummingbird, you, the hummingbird blew me away because there's so much detail around its eye, but then you get that blur in its wings. And just to be able to have that balance is amazing as well. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I, the, one of the reasons I teach so many, or that, that I'm doing so many different um, uh, subjects is because I teach. And I teach several places locally. And since I don't want to teach the same thing, you know, when I've like side by side cities or something like that, you know, I try to make sure that I'm offering something different for each place that I'm teaching. So that means changing up my subject matter. And so that's why I end up having a, a wide range of subject matter from landscape to floral to portraits to still life and so on. You know, it's it's all varied. That's awesome. And so maybe we should talk about, uh, we'll talk about your process because right, so right now, just to clarify, you're working 100% watercolor? Uh, pretty or? pretty much, yes. I don't, I don't have much time for anything else now. <laughs> are you still, are you doing any graphite work? Yes, I am. Uh, it mostly in my sketchbook, <laughs> but not okay. uh, not uh, too much that I'm actually uh, putting on display. Okay, so that's you. That's kind of like nobody sees that. That's your little work area. Yeah. And so, before I get into the watercolor tools, because I'm, you know, enamored with pencil, what do you? Why would you open your sketchbook? What is it that you do in there? Like, why do you use your sketchbook? Is it is it to work on uh, composition? Is it uh, placement? Is it uh, working on lines? Like, why do you open your sketchbook versus going right to uh, the watercolor paper? Uh, well, partly to work out my composition, uh, but also sometimes I'm just drawing to keep my drawing skills honed. Right? You've got to keep it. You've got to keep drawing, or you're gonna sort of forget how. <laughs> So, but you know, I'm and I might be, uh, I might record something like if I'm on a vacation or something and I want to remember something from the day, I'll sketch it because if you just take a snapshot of it, it doesn't stick with you in the same way that it does if you draw it. If you draw it, especially from life, then you're you're taking the time to study it, and all the time you're studying it, you're you're remembering the sights, the sounds, the 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 uh, smells, you know, all of those things that are connected with that. So you become a little bit more in tune with what's going on, much like most plein air painters do. Yes, exactly. And urban sketchers the same way. It's that, you know, that built in kind of multiple senses that rather than just uh, uh, taking a picture of it, right? Absolutely. It's, yeah. Yes. I wanted to ask you as well, you were talking about drawing and drawing in a sketchbook. Do you feel that because I've heard some artists suggest that, you know, you don't really have to draw well to paint well. How important do you think it is for an artist to be able to draw well? I think it's pretty important, even if uh, even if you're a painter that paints sort of abstractly. I think that drawing is, is an important skill because it teaches, teaches observation, composition, uh, balance, you know, all of the things that go into, uh, you know, strong work. Uh, I, I think it's important to... You know, that doesn't mean you have to be like 
you know the uh, a high realistic drawer but I think you need to hone those uh, skills of studying your subject and if it's non-objective abstract then I still think that you aren't going to do any harm by by honing those skills because you may find during your career that you're going to change direction uh, I think a lot of artists f- change direction throughout their career because if you paint the same thing or draw the same thing over and over and over again, well, you're going to get bored, your audience is going to get bored. I think it is important to uh, grow and change. And I think you need those drawing skills if you're going to uh, grow. Agreed. And, you know, speaking of change of directions, you look at Bateman, who went from abstract to realism. Yes, right? yes. That's a in, huge example. In our high school, he had a, a fabulous uh, um, mural that he did with the students. It's all cubism. So... Uh, <laughs> That's how it all started, right? Yeah, and it's yeah, and it's like you wouldn't even like if you saw the mural, you would never guess in a million years that it was his design. That's incredible. <laughs> when you're working on a watercolor piece, maybe let's talk about the paper first. What size do you tend to work in, and what kind of paper do you like to work on? I almost exclusively work with hundred percent cotton paper, and uh, I use Arsh mostly. And uh, that's the one I use, but there's a lot of other good brands out there. But the the key element here is that it's 100% cotton. It controls the amount of absorption. Like, it, you know, it's really thirsty, so you can uh, do a lot of effects on that kind of paper than, say, a student quality where it kind of sits on the surface and, you know, it just kind of moves around. And then you try to do another layer and the first layer starts moving around on you. So you want you need the first layers of your painting to soak into the paper and sort of bond with the paper. So having a good quality cotton paper is the most important thing. And are you using, uh, I assume you're using cold press? Yes, cold press. It's the best of both worlds. I can get enough detail and it allows me to do nice washes. And when you are starting a piece, do you like, do you soak it and stretch it and do any kind of work like that? Or do you just tape it down and off you go? I I used to hate stretching. When they taught me in in college, it was terrible. It was this this big, heavy board and you had to use a heavy duty stapler. And it was, it took some work to get the staples in and even more work to get them out. But uh, now I can use something really lightweight. It's called gator board or watercolor board. So I just soak my paper for three minutes, room temperature. Then I take it out and I use a, a regular office stapler and I staple it all the way around. It takes me a minute <laughs> to do. And that's my watercolor paper stretched. I just have to wait for it to dry. So when it's dry, I just put some masking tape around the edges to make sure that they don't uh, tear or anything like that. And it gives me a nice clean edge and I'm good to go. I'll have to try that. So is it uh, is it like a hardboard, like a like masonite that you're using as a matter of the backing? It's called gator board, or sometimes it's called watercolor board, and it looks like foam board. Looks like a piece of foam board. That's exactly what it looks oh, okay. like. Except the difference is that instead of uh, um, paper on the front and back, it's got this veneer, so it's really hard. You can staple into it, and it doesn't crush. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, there's probably somebody listening right now saying, I know what that is, Mike. 
<laughs> but I will uh, I will find a couple of links to that and and, uh, and link out to it. I've not I'm not aware of this, so I'm going to have to. I just cut up a sheet of uh, masonite into a bunch of different sizes to use for uh, my graphite drawing. So I was thinking, you can't staple masonite. <laughs> No, <laughs> it's great for drawing, but not, uh, but, uh, you know, you could tape a watercolor piece, but I've always wondered about, because some people don't stretch at all yes, and, and others do, and it's quite a complex process for some, but I think I like the, your approach where you just simply lay it out and, you know, soak your paper, mm-hmm. lay it out and, and maybe explain to the listener why you would want to stretch your paper. Absolutely. Well, I, I would always stretch it because First of all, my process that I use, because I'm a high realist, I it's, it's very slow. It takes me a long time. But when, I, when you're talking about 100% cotton paper, the shrinkability of cotton is just like your jeans. <laughs> you throw it in the washing machine, and it gets really big, right? They kind of grow. And then you put them in the dryer, and boy, do they shrink. And it's amazing how much it shrinks. So as you're working and it's getting wet, and it's expanding, and those fibers have nowhere to go. So they go up and down and everywhere, and your paper crinkles. But if it's stapled, and after you've wet it, sort of the wettest it's ever going to be during the whole process, you wet it for three minutes, nothing's going to be soaked front and back for three minutes during your painting. So you do that at the beginning, then you staple it down, and that ensures that no matter what kind of uh, wrinkling happens during your painting process, it's going to end up totally flat. So I can take it right off of the board and put it straight into a frame. I don't have to fuss about flattening it out afterwards or anything like that. You know, you do it at the beginning or you do it at the end, it's going to happen, right. right? So, And if you're a really fast painter, some people paint, it's, I know some people will put a piece of uh, watercolor paper onto a piece of acrylic and they will soak the paper and they will just basically the wetness of the paper will suction it to the to the plastic and they work quickly but of course the first thing that happens is the edges begin to dry first naturally and and yeah. it starts to wrinkle up so so then they would have to once again they would have to stretch it and or flatten it somehow afterwards and so when you're working with these pieces are they full like, was it 20 by 30? 22 by 30 is a full sheet. And um, that's pretty large. Most most of what I am working on is either a quarter sheet or a half sheet. Uh, but I've, I'm getting the itch to uh, to paint a little larger these days. Yeah. That must be challenging then to do. Like, I mean, it, I guess it gets to a point like you can't do a four foot by six foot watercolor easily. Oh, yes, you can do it. If you can get the paper, you can do it. Yes. Uh, A friend of mine, uh, he painted a five foot by 10 foot, I believe, commission. And it was amazing. But it it took some doing to staple that one down. Wow. It was like wetting (laughs) and stapling as you're going kind of thing. That's amazing. And I know like there's a wonderful artist out of South Africa that does graphite work and he wets his paper as well. I mean, he uses hot press, I think uh, uh, Fabriano maybe, but, um, and I'm not even sure if it's 300 GSM, it may be as high as 640, but he wets his graphite paper before he starts. He just, he has a reasoning behind it, but. Hmm. But he's working on it dry, correct? He's working on it dry, but he does apply some of the graphite powder with a liquid. Okay. 
um, but it's not water. I, th- I forget what he uses, but uh, when he's actually drawing and, and doing a lot of that work, he um, it's all done dry. But when he's applying some of the uh, the backgrounds mm-hmm. in that to make it really dark, I think he's using like a... Um, I don't even know what the material is. I'll have to I'll have to look it up. But um, anyways, it's not water. Hmm. Well, I would theorize that he's probably doing it because cotton being so absorbent can absorb a, a tremendous amount of humidity, which could cause wrinkling. Right? Yes, maybe that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. I, and I know like he probably has a video where he explains this, but I was just, when you were saying that, I was thinking, wait a sec, I know a graphite artist that also does that. Uh, so this is something that I've not done because I usually work in sketchbooks. I've done some, like some like a four kind of size uh, of the, you know, roughly because the arches stuff is kind of weird sizing, but um, you know, I'm talking about the, the blocks, yes, uh, the block paper versus the, the, the big sheets. So you're working on quarter half sheets of the 22 by 30 kind of sizing, working with cold press and pre-soaking your paper. So when it comes to kind of the next step, are you sketching the piece first in pencil like how do you first kind of get that sense of where things are going to sit what do you do next well i don't usually do all my sketching on my directly onto my paper i would do it on a a piece of um, maybe tracing paper or something like that first and then i transfer it and the reason that i do that is so that i'm not using any erasing like a, like a, a nylon eraser or a, a kneaded eraser or anything like that on my paper. And then I know that when I go to paint, that my paper's in really good condition. It hasn't been abrased in any way. Yeah, it's uh, even working in graphite. When you start destroying the tooth of any paper, it is so hard. You cannot. I mean, I think if you were doing acrylics, you could probably do something with it. But when you're working with mediums like watercolor and graphite, you destroy that For tooth. Sure. Yeah, it's really tough. Yeah. So you're transferring this to the paper really lightly such that you can see it. Yes. And then you're painting on top of it. So maybe we'll keep a focus on material and we'll get into the process. So uh, as a matter of brushes then that you're using, what is like what kind of brushes do you tend to work with? Is there a kind or a size or is there two or three that you go to or do you have 60 that you use? I have a little bit of a problem with brushes. <laughs> but it isn't always because I've I've accumulated them. I've inherited a lot of brushes too. So, But I, I started off with a lot of uh, synthetic brushes, uh, nylon brushes and things like that. Uh, as, as I watched more and more watercolorists working, I seem to see that a lot of them were using a similar type of brush and it turned out to be a squirrel hair brush. So I thought I'd order order some and try them out and I love them. Like they're just, they hold so much paint and water. And I found that in order to sort of get a wash even, that can make a huge amount of difference. If you're trying to take a little bit of water in a brush and, and get it down so fast and then you load up the brush, but that that little moment that it takes to load up your brush again in going back, that first little bit could have soaked in. So you need a brush that works more like a mop on the floor instead of a toothbrush, <laughs> right? Right. And imagine if you're working at that kind of scale where maybe you're doing a half sheet and you're like you're putting a, a whack of paint down at times at once. So having a large brush. And so squirrel hair, but you probably are using a very large brush Right. Yes. As a matter of, I mean, you're using a few probably, but um, are there, what kind, what types of brushes are you using as a matter of 
is there a are you using a large mop brush i guess but are you using a pointed round in there as well and, i use uh, i would say that the uh, my workhorse brush is uh, a ma- a basic round brush that does most of my work but uh, i would use for laying down washes i would be using something like um, a large wide oval or a large flat as long as it holds a lot and I can um, fill it up with a lot of paint to to apply a wash. Uh, I usually will manage pretty well with that. So I even bought something that I use quite often just for wetting my paper, and it's actually a, a basting brush, <laughs> like <laughs> nice. you buy at the at the kitchen store. Uh, it, it's actually a basting brush. I've seen the identical brush at the art store for three times the price. So. I thought, well, I'll, bu- I'll just buy it at the kitchen store and <laughs> manage with that. But it, it worked just fine. It was so funny when you first replied with, uh, you know, I, I think I have a, you know, I, I collect a lot of brushes. And I, I think I've probably heard of that from five or six artists, I think, on here. It's like we all, we're really good at collecting stuff, right, as artists? Yeah. Uh, well, I, as I said, I did oil and I did acrylic. So I have dedicated brushes for each of those mediums, too. So Yes. And I collect sketchbooks and brushes, and so I'm not I'm not ashamed. I think to be a good artist, you have to be a good collector as well. I think so. <laughs> and so, uh, what are you using for the kind of detail, like the real detail that work that you're doing? What is your favorite brush for for kind of getting in there and doing that? I would say probably the uh, squirrel squirrel hair brushes, but just in a smaller size. The squirrel hair brushes, besides holding a lot, they have a nice point. So uh, okay. so it depends on how you use it. If you lay it on its side, you can lay down a lot of color. Or you can use it sort of on the tip and just get a little fine detail. And is there a brand that you prefer um, or does it matter? No, I think they're all fairly similar. Uh, I have actually a couple of different brands. I have some that are travel brushes as well. So uh, they're, they're handy to take along with me. So... You know, I have, I have like a little watercolor sketchbook and I have, uh, you know, some little travel brushes and you really don't need too much from that. I actually made a little mini palette out of uh, an eyeshadow that I got from the dollar store. I took the eyeshadow out and put paints into it. And nice. so that's compact enough to stick in my pocket. And that's all I need. And a little water. <laughs> that's yeah. it. So I need to, uh, need to ask you about paint. Yes. And what's your opinion on the paint that we should be using? Well, I think that there's a lot of really good brands. Uh, Like there's a lot of top brands, Winsor Newton, Daniel Smith, uh, Da Vinci, Holbein, you know, they're all very good brands. There's a lot of uh, uh, new companies that are, are sort of crafting, you know, like the the beer companies have, like there's all these craft breweries coming up. There seems to be a lot of home handmade uh, paints that are popping up right but and they're all very good quality so the difference of course between these because they're all using a very similar product in terms of the pigment right the pigments the pigment right it's it's got a name it's got a number and so on but it's it's like apple pie I make an apple pie it's going to be different than your apple pie there's different sort of ways of putting it together and things like that so you're going to have your own personal favorites and I have I have a variety of paints in my palette, but they're all artist quality. And I think if you're if you're somebody who's newer to watercolor, I recommend that if you are starting, that 
sure, go ahead and buy those student qualities if that's all that's in your budget. But I don't think you need to buy a, a, a pack with 20, 30 colors in it. You don't need that many colors. You just need a few. You just need primaries and something light, maybe something neutral. That That's all you need. You don't have to buy every color in the book. Learn to mix your colors. And the student quality is is fine for starters, but then replace them one by one with right. with quality paints, you know, as your budget allows. Or if you can afford it, just buy the buy the good stuff from the from the start. And the difference is this, the filler. The filler is is going to you know, they have to make it inexpensive somehow, right? So they have to cut back on something. So they put a lot more fillers in there and substitute pigments that can like in in addition to the the main pigment they're using, but there's a lot of things that they do differently. Yeah, I was commenting on my, with my last guests about that in in that you like the first watercolors I got, it was so chalky. Yes, like it 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 was it's it's like I did it wrong. Yeah, <laughs> there's something wrong with me, and it's not me. It's the it paint. is the paint, and and a lot of that has to do with the transparency or opacity of the paint too. So if you're just buying paint because it's a pretty color you may not know that that paint is opaque. It might cover the white of your watercolor paper. Others let that white of the watercolor shine through like a stained glass window. And so that transparency is very important. And I I will mention, you've got a list of a bunch of materials on your website, which I will link Mm -hmm. to. I assume that's still current and applicable when you're talking about... Yes. If that changes, I'm changing my website. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Because I'm sure people will lean on that and say, but you said... But so, I mean, back to your point about... So if you can... Would it make more sense if you had a certain limited funds that, you know, maybe it's better to look at six professional grade watercolors than buying a pack of 20 student Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Plus, you're going to benefit from learning how to mix color. How many colors do you have in your palette? Like, like, are you against convenience colors? Do you mix a lot of your own? What's your th- kind of thought on well, that? Well, convenience colors end up being a little bit flat. Like my palette, I mean, it, it's a color wheel palette, and it has quite a few wells in it. And I fill them up just because I have them, <laughs> to be honest. But, <laughs> okay. but like, I have a lot of greens, but I find more often than not, I don't go to those greens. I end up mixing them because I want variations. If I'm doing a tree and I just make a light version of one green and then I use the dark version of that same green, it's not very, it has no warm or cool or anything like that. It's it's all the same green. It's just thinned down or not. So it makes right. a big difference, I think, in terms of creating something that is a little more dimensional. Yeah, I would agree on on that in the comment about the greens because you know I lean on uh, I'll lean on sap green till the cows come home because I I, <laughs> I just you know because I'm drawing frogs and and things like that all the time. But yeah. uh, you're right when you're trying to find that kind of the green that's capturing a bit of sunlight. Uh, it's not necessarily a sap green with something else in it. It may be that you want to mix that one to, to obtain a, something that's a you know a little bit warmer. You know, sap isn't so yeah. bad, but uh, you, you may want to mix something yourself. Right? Yes, absolutely. I guess if you were uh, somebody who was like. If you were planar painting and it's summertime, well, there's going to be a lot of green. And I can see the, I could possibly see the benefit of having a convenience green for that. But I wouldn't use it straight out of the tube. I would always be mixing something else into it to change that up. 
Right. Yeah, and there's a couple of greens I just I, I don't like at all, but I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna shame them on the podcast. <laughs> you know, there's a few colors I lean on a lot just because of the nature of the subjects I'm choosing. Are are there colors that you really love that you love exploring, that you love trying to use because you can do so much with them? Yeah, I think I have a warm and a cool of every uh primary. So Right now, I have a lot of Da Vinci paints, and that's mainly because at the time that I started using it, I had been asked to teach. And of course, I had to teach with the same product that I expect my students to buy. And that's what was moderately priced at the local store. Nobody was buying online at that time. So um, <laughs> so I was using that. And I knew, also knew that if I was teaching in Nova Scotia, that this store would be able to ship these paints to them because I don't I have no idea what they have in in their area if I'm teaching away from home so so that was my reasoning behind uh, going with that brand but but I do enjoy the paints very much so I'm using cobalt blue cerulean blue that's my warm and cool of my blues then I have a permanent rose and a rose door that's my warm and cool of my red and I use an aureolan which is a mixture actually, and also my gamboge, which is also a mixture in Da Vinci, uh, and that's my warm and cool of my yellows. Okay. So those, so I've got a warm and cool of every primary, then I have a couple of darks, and I have a couple of neutrals. Okay. Is there a paint that you couldn't live without? Uh, a color. One, like one color? Yeah, is there one color that you just... Ooh. If it was... <laughs> that's, that's hard. That's like picking your favorite child. <laughs> yes. I don't know. Uh, that would be tough. Um, uh, I'm going to say yellow, I guess, because uh, it, it warms up so many things that I want to use in my the creation of my feeling of light. Right. Like the sun hitting the back of a swan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Interesting. Are, are you using... Th- Things like um, uh, Payne's Gray, are you using grays like that? Or are you mixing those yourselves when it comes to some of the uh, the shadows? I mean, it's always good to mix a shadow in with the color that, that you're trying to. Yeah, I, I actually use Payne's Gray quite a bit. I also use um, uh, something called Neutral Tint. Neutral Tint okay. is um, it, it's a, it's a little bit of a warmer gray. It's also a little bit more sort of uh, not as dark. I mean, you could use it full strength and it can be very dark, but it tends to be a little bit more transparent and a little bit warmer. So, And I will use that in some instances just when I want a gray that's not a, uh, that's fairly uh, uniform, I guess. Right. But I, I don't use it so much for darkening everything. I mean, I, I try to put life into shadows, you know, where you're using sort of multiple colors in shadows, not just a gray. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people need to get away from that idea that because it's in shadow, that means I've got need a dark color <laughs> that I have on my palette to drop on top of what I just So true. Right. And that was so me earlier on. <laughs> <laughs> Till I learned. <laughs> and I would agree about the, uh, the paints gray, because you can see the blue in yes. that, right? You can see the coolness in it versus a neutral yes. tint. So it's... Um, I do tend to lean on it a lot, but I, I also have some neutral tint that I'm trying to use a little bit more or mixing something closer yeah. to that because that's... Uh... And every neutral tint's a little different because it's, it's sort of like a mixture and every company mixes it different, just like the apple pie scenario. <laughs> right. And are you using any... <laughs> I have to ask this because I think people... Anyways, I'm just going to go ahead and ask it. Are you using any white gouache 
in any of your work? I try to not use it, but I will use it for small accents at the end if if it's required. But it, okay. it has a different look than the paper itself. So you can always, it always looks like, you know, you can take a piece of white paper and you can put white out on it. Remember white out? And yes. you can tell it's different. And so I don't use it for fixing anything. Just, you know, adding, adding a couple of little highlights here and there. Yeah, because I noticed for the uh, uh, the society that they talk about the use of gouache when you're submitting work, that it can't be a percentage, like they don't want you using a whole bunch of it, right? right? Um, that there's some kind of control over that, that you're not mixing the mediums yeah. too much or not, not even mixing the mediums because it is watercolor, but it's, it's extremely opaque and yeah. it's slightly different, but uh, it's good to know that you still use it. Do you use masking fluid at all? Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> You asked what color I couldn't live without. I don't think I could live without masking fluid. <laughs> Not for the type of painting I'm doing. Not high realism, right? Sometimes yes. you just need to do a wash around something that's really sort of intricate or complex. And I don't know how you would do it if I didn't have masking fluid. So, so you're masking not just light areas. You're masking areas that may have detail that you want to, as you say do something yeah, around. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'll use it for big areas, but I will use it for little details and stuff too. Like imagine doing um, a cut crystal, right? You you would have a lot of little sparkling highlights and, and to paint around all the little highlights could just drive you a little crazy. Now, I want to ask you about the masking fluid because I haven't used it a whole lot. I think I've used it once. And you didn't like it? I used it on my skin. No, I didn't mind it, but I forgot to take it all off. I was... <laughs> <laughs> So, so I was flipping through my sketchbook, and I had done it on a tree frog, and I, I was noticing, like, I thought the paper was white. That looks a bit yellow, and I didn't realize I, I, I hadn't removed it all. No, I, I would think it was fine with it. I just don't, it's not part of the way I think with watercolor at this point, so I'm not, and, and I'm not doing huge pieces yet in watercolor, right? So it's in my sketchbook. I'm trying to do stuff in a cafe and that, so I'm not bringing masking fluid with me or anything like that, mm -hmm. so I'm trying to make do. But I guess my question for you is, you know, when you're using something like masking fluid, it's going to give you a really hard line, right, between where you've peeled it off and the color that's beside it. And how do you work with that? Because sometimes, like in a cut crystal, you may want a really good hard line, and sometimes you may want that kind of fade. So can you talk about that? Is there times when you don't use it because of that, or is Maybe I'll yeah, absolutely. There's that is the downside to the masking fluid is it will give you that really crisp type of edge, but sometimes that is the contrast you want. Maybe it's your focal point. It, like on, on a person, it might be the glint in their eye, uh, or but on cut crystal or something like that, you may have a contrast in a few places, but then there'd be other times where you're just going to have something subtle. So if you really don't want it to show a lot. You can um, not have a really dark color right next to it. So you're just going to be extra careful about what you're putting around that. But it's going to ensure that you keep that extra white. And then you can soften it afterwards if you need to. So when it comes off. Right. I also wanted to ask you about when you're first, when you're doing these pieces, you're taking your reference photo and you're starting this piece. What do you think that you're bringing to the version that you're painting versus the reference photo? Are you trying to inject 
something different. Like you're not necessarily, I mean, James Gurney talks about this all the time about, you know, what you, what you take a photograph of and what you see, there's, there's an artist's interpretation of things, right? Where you maybe want to warm everything up or you want to cool things down. Do you, do you find yourself doing something around that? Are you, are you consciously thinking this is, this is, this is how I paint? Or are you thinking for this one, I'm going to do something different? Well, more and more, yes, I am trying to take a, like a little take a different spin to it than reality. And the one downside to photography is it tends to really pump up the contrast almost unnaturally, uh, especially cameras nowadays. It, 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 if you take a picture, sometimes the shadows are so dark by comparison. You like even if you're adjusting it on the edit program on your camera or your phone you can't even get enough information in those shadows and they're never as gray looking at, in person as they would be in your on your phone they always look a lot grayer on your phone so i just kind of have recently taken the the idea of take those shadows and do anything but just black or gray just try to do anything other than that it can be it can be a muted color but put some color in there rather than make it just gray because it's just so lifeless. Uh, and, and you can always tell, you know, some of my earlier work, I look at it and I go, oh, those those shadows were so, so flat looking, you know, they just don't have any life to them. And uh, so, yeah, more, more and more, I'm taking something, even though I'm giving a, a really realistic interpretation, I'm trying to take it one step further and make making sure that you know I'm I'm conscious of warm light or cool light and whether my shadows are are either cool or warm you you gave the example of the the wheel there where I've got the the uh lots of blues on it and reds and things like that and and they're noticeable at least to an artist they're they're noticeable so you would have noticed that but um but I, that was quite intentional. Yeah, and the way you've done the shadow with the blue is uh, like that's the thing, right? Is it's not just throwing something on top of it. Like you, you see the color that's below it, and you're not just as you said, you know, blacking it out just because it's it's in shadow. You're you're not making it black or dark yeah. gray. Yeah, the the actual reference picture it was pretty gray. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're gonna cross into I think teaching and and understanding. What do you think is the m- most important lesson? that someone moving in the watercolor needs to learn like what do you what do you find is holding people back fear you know when i look at shows you could you know if i've juried a show or something and i look at something you can see at a glance whether somebody has held back whether they've played it safe you know it's it's the ones that really stand out are the ones that just say oh to heck with it i'm just going to i'm just going to go for broke and and they'll just do something unexpected or put in a crazy color that you wouldn't typically see and you know you have to think beyond the photographs or think beyond reality sometimes and uh you know just be a little bolder is there some advice you can provide for kind of mixing colors because i think that's where i've heard some people struggle is that they buy the primary palette you know they go with the warm and the cool of you know the primaries and then they start mixing and everything turns brown (laughs) so what would you say as a matter of guidance 
or, or direction in how you kind of get ramped up into that and being able to play with colors? Well, if you know what complementary colors do for each other, they, they kind of neutralize each other. And sometimes if you mix them sort of an equal equal balance, they, they end up becoming quite gray or black. And so if you know that you're using a particular green and a particular red, or a, or a blue and a red, for example. If you take the orange red, like there's there's a red that looks kind of orange and then there's a red that looks kind of pink. So the complement of blue is orange. So if you took that orange red and mixed it with the blue, it's gonna be a lot duller than the one you use the pink red for. So blue and a pink red will give you something a little bit more purple. Whereas blue and the orange red is gonna give you something more uh, orange. So if you can sort of relate it to the complements, knowing that, you know, they're they're sort of an opposite on the color wheel, get yourself a color wheel <laughs> if you don't have one and get and so you understand what's opposite on the color wheel. And uh, you'll you'll see what's what's more directly across is going to turn out a little flatter. Uh, than, say, an analogous color that's sort of right next to it. Interesting. Uh, I'm still struggling with mixing my colors, but I do have a color wheel, so <laughs> I'm trying to learn from that. You've been teaching for, for how long now? Uh, probably about 25 years or so, maybe more. Wow. Yeah. Do you feel that teaching has changed your style? I don't know that it's changed my style. I think that um, it has changed my practice of of learning how to how to express it like I've had to I've you know they say if you want to learn something uh teach it <laughs> and I can't can't disagree with that you know I thought well if I'm going to be telling other people how to how to paint then I have to I have to know that the information I'm giving is is correct <laughs> so I don't want to lead them astray uh or that'll be the end of that career <laughs> so um they, they actually started asking me to teach watercolor and then somebody else asked me to teach watercolor and then I got to be known as a watercolor teacher and so I, it's just I got swept away and that's all I do now <laughs> so <laughs> but uh, the teaching is is something that has uh, not changed my style so much as it's just given me a little bit more uh, sort of every day I'm, I'm at it every day I'm more conscious of what I'm doing because I have to explain it to somebody. Yeah, I've noticed that uh, I'm doing a drawing course right now, recording videos for that. And what a way to get to know yourself is to try and teach someone else, especially when you're doing something like recording videos where there's no audience and uh, trying to teach somebody else what you do. So you have to break, you have to tear yourself apart and rebuild yourself yeah. in a different medium. Yes, you it's have hard. to be more sort of analytical of about what you're doing. So you never know what question's yeah. going to come at you, but you better have an answer. <laughs> yes. And and you've like you've done this for so long. I've seen your uh, YouTube channel where you do these videos and uh, people join you live, and it's it's fantastic watching you just work away at this. And you know, I, I will have it in the background. I've done this a few times now, and I'll come back and it's like, oh wow, <laughs> it's it's amazing what you're able to pull off. Oh, thank uh, you with everyone watching you. So are you, maybe talk about what you're doing now with regard to YouTube and like uh, in your lives and workshops and things like that. Well, interestingly, I I didn't really start the YouTube channel to really turn it into anything. I started it during the pandemic because when, when we all learned that this was going to be like a two or three year sort of haul with, uh, with COVID, then 
I thought, well, where am I going to teach? I have to teach. I can't show work. I can't, you know, couldn't do anything that I was used to doing. So I thought, well, I better learn how to teach online. So I needed some practice. And so I thought, I, I want to stay in touch with my students too, because I don't want them to go off and start quilting or knitting or something, some other thing other than, than painting. So um, I started it for them and for me to practice because I wasn't really used to being in front of a camera or painting. Uh, I mean, I was used to people watching me paint in person, but not so much on a camera. And uh, so I needed to learn to work all the video stuff and everything at the same time. But where I see it going is, I don't know, I just, I think I'm just going to uh, sort of carry on as as long as I'm enjoying it. And uh, if people want to hang around and watch me paint, that's, that's, I'm all for it. And so you do this every week? Yeah, every week on Wednesday mornings, uh, uh, Toronto time at 10 o'clock. And, and how long does it usually last? Uh, an hour to an hour and a half. So I, I'm usually painting something live. And uh, sometimes I'm, you know, like there's been what, like times when I've had to be at a show or something. So I just, I just turn on my phone and <laughs> you come with me kind of thing, you know, <laughs> nice. and, and we talk about entering shows or, or things like that. But most of the time I'm painting. And, uh, you know, it's gotten to the point where it's like people are suggesting what I might, what I might demonstrate. So I try to accommodate them. Well, it'd be wonderful if uh, if you're listening to this now and you decide to join in to one of Shelley's weekly uh, Wednesday, 10 a.m. Eastern uh, is when she does them. And just uh, just mention you you heard about it on the podcast, and that would be uh, I, I've been there for a few of them. I don't think I've said anything, but uh, in the chat, but uh, it's wonderful seeing it live. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, Didn't know you were hiding in the in the wings. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> I've I've seen a few of them, but I'm going to be trying to squeeze it in. But I, I have it have a day job, so it's hard for me to do that live. But uh, yeah, always lurking in the shadows. And so beyond the YouTube stuff, you're also doing other courses. Like how how else can people get some instruction from you? Uh, well, if you're local, I teach locally at uh, Dundas Valley School of Art where I started. <laughs> I also teach at um, the Oakville Art Society. The uh, Although I don't have any classes this fall, I'm also teaching at Visual Arts Mississauga. Uh, sometimes I'm teaching workshops with uh, the Burlington Fine Arts in uh, at the Art Gallery of Burlington. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm all over the place. <laughs> And do you have workshops like available online beyond the YouTube? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I have lots of Zoom workshops. In fact, I've recorded all the ones I've done previously, and they're still available. So, okay. so what I did was I recorded them in HD, and so I was teaching them live via Zoom, and then then they're recorded. So, like if you if you missed it for some reason or something, and you wanted to see it, it's still available. And for these uh, classes that you're doing, uh, the Zoom ones as well, are they all basically the same in the sense that you are, there's a subject, we're working on this one piece, and we're going to take it from beginning to end? Is that Yes. Um, usually when I'm teaching in person, uh, I will I will easily be able to teach where, you know, everybody's working on something else. But the one thing you don't get as much from Zoom uh, when you're teaching something visual is you, I'm not seeing what they're doing. So I can't help them with their original. But very often, uh, you know, if you've got somebody who's more advanced, uh, somebody who's a little bit further on in their intermediate level or something like that, then then they'll take the idea 
from the lesson and they'll apply it to their own similar idea. I mean, very often people will take a, a workshop just because it's, you know, I wanted to do uh, a sunset uh, at my cottage, you know, so they might take one of the sunset demos that I've done to apply it to their own. Right. And on your YouTube, you, you've done other stuff, not just paintings, right? You've talked about other things that may be of interest to people as well. Yeah. I have actually, I, I have one or two uh, acrylic things on there or how to make your own um, graphite paper, uh, things like that. So I try to switch it up and, and do sort of art related things, how to create a right. uh, watercolor sketchbook, stuff like that. So it's not me painting all the time, but uh, I try to mix it up. So how do you balance it now? Like you're doing a lot of teaching. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how do you balance that with, I want to paint my own thing right now? <sighs> The, the never-ending battle. <laughs> well, yes. during COVID, you know, like, I had nothing else going on. So I started all this online stuff and, uh, you know, Zoom workshops and YouTube and and social media, like the Instagram and Facebook and, and Reddit and all that kind of stuff. And, and then we started resuming the in-person things. So that all got added back in. So for the last two years, it's been a little bit of a a bit of a ride because I've been teaching mostly seven classes a week, which is a lot. And so I'm, I'm cutting back a little bit this fall, but we'll see how that goes. I, like I'm trying to cut back on some of it. You know, too much of Shelley isn't a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so are you cutting back because you're trying to make more space for your own stuff? Or you just... Yeah, 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 I am. Uh, I have, you know, my own wish list of, of things that I'd like to paint and, and uh, not enough time to fit it in. <laughs> right. so. so can I ask about that wish list? Like what, what kind of pieces are you thinking about? Like what is there something that you've wanted to take on? Maybe it's a challenging subject or a challenging size or. Yeah. I, I want to work big. Uh, like I said, I've, I've got the urge right, right now to work s something extra large. So I've got a roll of watercolor paper, and uh, I just need to find myself a nice big board so I can stretch a great huge piece and do something fantastic. <laughs> How big are you going to go? Oh, I don't know. I think I'm going to go like three feet by four feet or something like that. I don't know I, exactly yet, but... Uh, uh, That's... That's pretty yeah. big in watercolor yeah, land. <laughs> it is. It is. I'm going to have to get some bigger brushes maybe, right? But <laughs> <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> have to go to the kitchen store and see if they've got bigger pasting brushes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <sighs> That's awesome. So what is the rest of the year and maybe into 2024 looking like for you? Like you talked about maybe reducing... Uh, your hours. Do you have other things on the horizon that um, are coming up? I, I've actually had in my back pocket the the idea of of teaching away, like teaching somewhere in, like going to Tuscany and teaching there or something, and taking a group with me. I I thought that that would be kind of awesome to combine travel with uh, with my teaching. I mean, I I've taught around the U.S. and in, across Canada and stuff too, but um, but I mean like a. I've gone to where everybody is kind of thing. I'm talking about taking right. them all with me. <laughs> everybody right. hops on a plane and we go somewhere kind of cool to that would be painting that location, which isn't their home. Yeah, I've seen so many artists doing this kind of destination art mm -hmm. journey stuff. And I I look at it and I'm thinking, oh, maybe one day. Yeah. I, 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I've spoken to a few artists. One's in France now, another one's in Italy. I just interviewed one artist who's actually spending time with a previous artist, Hazel Sohn, who was on here. Uh, so she's actually spending time with her in, I think it was Italy. And it was, uh, it's like, oh man, I, that would be so much fun. I absolutely think you should do that. I, I'm sure there'd be so many people that would jump at the opportunity to go to I'd love to, yeah. Wherever, right? I mean, travel wasn't exactly um, great over the last couple of years, you know, but uh, yes, but it, it's something that I, I, it's something I'd love to do. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, people talk about Tuscany and uh, like Croatia. There's there's some really interesting parts of the world where uh, it would be kind of a fun, you know, three or four or five day experience, yeah. right? That would be cool. Are you getting any kind of itch with oil or acrylic or are you? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I, I'm actually going on <laughs> on a, a three day excursion, not an excursion, but I'm going up north for three days, four days next week <laughs> and I, I think i'm going wow. to take my acrylics with me instead just for f- how far north are you going oh not that far um it, it's near where is it near uh sudbury i think not not too far from sudbury okay i was i wasn't sure if you were thinking like like churchill oh, no. <laughs> like okay <laughs> not polar bear land <laughs> no <laughs> right yeah so for those around the world that's you know so Sudbury would still be a bit of a, a drive yeah. I don't know where it is how it is from uh, Toronto probably three and a half four hours or something like that yeah so northern kind of northernish yeah. Ontario yeah. Churchill is where we would find yeah. polar bears and things like that and yeah. no trees so why would you so why what makes you think you're going to bring acrylics I'm just curious about because what. um the the person leading it is an acrylic and oil instructor so oh okay I okay. rather than okay. rather than I'm going to go with the flow <laughs> yeah wow I had a friend who was uh, very eager to take this workshop and she invited me along and and she said you can bring your watercolors if you want and I'm like well I might just I might just pull out my acrylics for a change that might be kind of fun I mean, I'm curious to see. Are you going to post what you do, or is, or is your? Oh, maybe I will. Yeah. Okay. You're not. You're not just a watercolor only uh, social no. media no. channel, right? <laughs> but I don't want. I won't. Don't want the watercolor followers to go. Oh no, she switched over to acrylics and leave me alone. Right. So for people who are are listening to this, you'll have to look back because what you're talking about is going to be in the past of when this episode comes yes. out. But uh, <laughs> I, I would encourage you to, to t- check out uh, Shelly's feed and hopefully there'll be one or two or something in there that will, if you're doing acrylic, yeah. then say, this is the experiment yeah. I did. Maybe I'll do my, my thumbnail sketch in watercolor and then do my painting in acrylic. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see huh. how it goes. <laughs> When's the last time you did acrylic? Well, I actually did an acrylic workshop for Oakville last year, and also oh, okay. also for Burlington Fine Arts um, at uh, at the Art Gallery Burlington, uh, but it was online, and uh, because they they had such a, a high number of acrylic painters, they asked for an acrylic workshop, so it was actually a palette knife painting workshop that I was doing. So wow. something different. That was kind of fun, actually, because it was because it was something different. Well, I think that would be yeah. I mean, if you're working watercolor at the time, maybe when you switch to a palette knife painting, it's pretty obvious that I'm doing something different. But I'm curious if you're going from watercolor all the time to then pulling out a brush and working with acrylic, are are you going to have to retrain your mind into? Oh yeah, I, I don't have to preserve the whites or uh, like. Are you going to approach the acrylic like a watercolor? Uh, I, 
I don't usually sort of overlap them. I, I'm pretty good at keeping them separate. Okay. But I probably, having said that, I probably do work thinner with my acrylics than most acrylic painters do. And I think that's okay. the little bit of watercolor in me. <laughs> right. Bring it a little bit of uh, transparency to everything, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah, something like so, that. Before we get into homework, uh, I wanted to ask you, what is, is, is there one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you first started into painting? into maybe even watercolors, if we want to be specific with that. Well, I guess I wish I knew the importance of quality materials, because I found that that truly was a game changer for me when I stopped trying to budget everything so tightly and, and you know, buy the, oh, this will do, this one's, this one's only, you know, five ninety nine <laughs> or whatever the case may be. <laughs> and uh, once I switched over, particularly in, terms of the paper that made a huge difference so the paper was a bigger difference for you than the the paint or absolutely the yeah and i think if you ask most watercolor sets what they're going to tell you is the paper is the most important thing and another question for you around that is what do you think is the best advice you've ever received i think the best advice i ever received was to whenever i'm doing a wash make a transition in it don't make it a flat wash it tends to flatten your painting. So you want to go from a warm to a cool or a light to a dark. Uh, but, you know, like if you're doing the side of a house, yes, if you were painting the side of the house, you would get a can of paint and you would just roll the whole thing all the same. But the way that the light hits it affects whether or not it changes from a warm color to a cool color or from a light to a dark. So when they, when it was put in those terms, to me. I found that that really changed things up. You know, that I really started looking at not just light and dark, but warm and cool. And you bring up something interesting because I'm I'm thinking about the course I'm working on where I'm spending uh, one of the course or one of the classes talking about depth and dimension with graphite. And what I find with the work that you're doing in watercolor is you're able to achieve that kind of depth and dimension, right? And that's what I think makes things jump out of the paper out of the paper at you is that ability to do that. And that's playing with the light and the dark. How quickly can somebody who's just playing with watercolor right now, how quickly do you think they can get to that? Because I the, the, like I think that's what really, you can get not the quite the blue that you want or the red over here, but getting that depth really makes, in my mind, a huge difference when I look at a piece. Right. I, I think, well, first of all, one of the first things I teach is using the full value range. Don't just, just don't use the middle area. You've got to use the lightest lights and the darkest darks. If you want to make dimensional looking objects, then you need to, you need the full value range. And having the correct color isn't the most important thing. The value is. So it doesn't, doesn't even matter if you're using a different color, completely different color. As long as it's the, the correct value it's going to look fine. And I've, I'm sure you've seen paintings where they've used like wild and crazy colors, but it still looks amazing. And it's because mm -hmm. they've got all the values right. Yeah. And that's, I think what's really important is, and, and that's why I say people should learn to draw because you've only got one Absolutely. color. Absolutely. <laughs> I was just going to say that too, because, you know, with your drawing, that's all you have. You All you have is value. And one of the, that, that kind of underlines the importance of keeping up your drawing skills, even if you're an abstract painter. 
I wonder if if you're struggling with watercolor, if maybe you should draw more. <laughs> for for the for someone who's not drawing right now, maybe. And I've suggested that. Like I I think I talked about that when I spoke at the um, for the society. I did the little presentation that I think there's a huge importance in people learning to draw when it comes to just understanding value, right? And and being stuck with one yeah. color, really. Well, you made that comparison actually that you know you think about drawing and you think about watercolor you approach them kind of the same way you don't you don't fill in all the whites you don't put a a scribble in a whole area and then you you leave that white you leave the white of the paper showing and so you need to do the same thing in watercolor and it took me a while to make that connection between watercolor and pencil and i was doing both and finally i realized it. i wish i would have known that in the first five tries i did at uh, at watercolor because I had spent so much time in pencil, and then I moved to watercolor, and I, 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 I was so frustrated. It was like, I, w- why do you have your own mind? I, that's not where I want you to go. Why don't you stay over here? <laughs> There's, you're not needed over there, Blue. You need to stay over here. And I just, I was chasing it around the paper, and I found it so frustrating. Yeah. Well, I so guess, I guess you have to give up a little control and understand that watercolor does move in its own way, and you just have to learn to work with it. It's like a dog yes. is a dog. And they're not going to behave like a human. So you have to work with that dog. But you can have a very good relationship. <laughs> yeah, it's taken me a while to develop that relationship. And I'm yeah. still struggling, but I'm I'm better than yeah. I was. So <laughs> Yeah, and you'll keep getting better if you keep at it. Yes, I've got to practice more. I think once I get this, this pencil course done, uh, then I'm going to move into watercolor for a bit because I've been doing so much graphite for the last yeah. two months just in preparation. It's for nice this, to so. do a change. Yes, absolutely. And I love pencil. Like I will work on watercolor probably for a bit and and finish this acrylic piece behind me. And I've got some oil paints from from, uh, uh, Sarah sent me some uh, like a beginner pack of oil paints and brushes. So I'm going to do that. But uh, I I keep falling back to pencil. Pencil is my first love and it will always be that way. So So I and I'm talking about homework for myself. But I think what we need to understand is for the listener is what homework would they have if uh, if you were to provide them something to do, something to action after our conversation? Well, here. I think the one thing that helped me the most was connecting to other painters. Don't be a closet painter. Uh, for me, it was because I had been a closet painter for many years and didn't really get involved. Uh, and and I, I mean, join your groups, find out about uh, what other people are doing you know, you can't live in a vacuum with with your painting. You have to get out there and see what's out there and uh, soak it all in. Be inspired by each other, you know, cheer each other on. I, I still have my high school teacher who is uh, cheering me on after 50 years. Wow, that's amazing. She's following She's following me on my, uh, on my social media. And every time I post a success, she's like, way to go. <laughs> She's just amazing. So, well, if she hears this, she yes, did good work. Thank you. Because you've been uh, you've been a joy to speak to, and I've I've loved looking at your art, and I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. I'm so thankful for people like you uh, as guests, where I, I have this conversation, and in Ottawa time, it's it's just shortly after nine p.m., and I feel like I'm going to have to just do some watercolor now. <laughs> so I, I love that kind of inspiration uh, after a conversation and being able to to go and just explore that. So uh, before I let you go, though, where can people find you online? Well, if you look up Shelley Pryor Fine Art, uh, you can find me on Instagram, 
YouTube, Facebook, Reddit. Yeah, I think you're going to find me in all of those places. And of course, my website, which is ShellyPrior.com. And it's Shelly spelled E-Y. Awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so maybe for people who are looking for community, they can find that through you and through some of the work that you're doing in the classes and uh, through the YouTube as well to, uh, as a way to connect with others and start building that. Because I think that is, it, it's a really good bit of homework if you're starting to build out as an artist to understand the power of mm-hmm. a network and, you know, getting the feedback, getting the inspiration, getting the challenges. I found that through... Um, the Clubhouse app, uh, which I joined when it, you know, I don't know how many years ago now, it was two, two and a half years ago. And that was huge through the pandemic. And I discovered so many creatives working in my space, but outside of my space as well. And uh, there is a huge empowerment that comes with community. And there's some maybe some challenges. I think you get to that imposter syndrome as well, where people around you are doing stuff, and it's like I'm not as good as they are, and that that never goes away, <laughs> ever. It never goes away. But I think that's I think that's okay. I think if if we're if we're doing that, we're evaluating ourselves, and there's nothing wrong with it. But um, I, I went through it in the last few weeks, thinking, who am I to do a drawing course? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it it happens Absolutely. to all of us. We'll all get through it, and uh, it is about uh, challenging ourselves. And I encourage you, as the listener, to to reach out to, to Shelley and and see what she's she has available as a matter of courses, and follow her YouTube. Uh, I'm going to probably be in the next one or two as well. I, I hope to see some of you there. You know, if you are playing with watercolor, take one of Shelley's courses, try and explore it that way. And if you're near Toronto, do it in person. That would be fantastic. There you go. Thank you so much, Mike. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, It's been wonderful speaking with you, getting to know you. And I hope maybe at some point we can uh, meet in person because we're not that far from each other. No, not really. And I wanted to thank you for your time. And uh, I'm hopeful that uh, the listener will feel inspired and be be able to go off and create something fantastic. So thanks, Shelley. Oh, thank you so much. I hope hope you're all uh, inspired to uh, get your brushes wet and keep them wet. It's the keeping them wet that's (laughs) That's important. (laughs) Yes, exactly. All right. Thanks again and uh, take care of yourself. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Show notes, including links to everything Shelley and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 105. If you enjoyed the show, please follow, then share with someone you think may find it helpful with their creative journey. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod.